be related to the active and passive obedience of Christ. Of course, we have studied and our thankfulness, we should be thankful for both. And the last one, question 98, wherein is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, which were delivered by the voice of God upon Mount Sinai and written by him on two tables of stone and are recorded in the 20th chapter of Exodus. The first four commandments containing our duty to God and the other six our duty to men. And then you remember in Shorter Catechism we've already read 22, Shorter Catechism question 42. These again are said to be summed up in to love God and love our neighbors. Now we have come this far, therefore, so far tonight. In moving from what we have studied of God and God's dealing with men, the work of Christ as the Savior, into the transition of no works can save, not repentance, <clears throat> not repentance, yet repentance has an important place. Not general, we can't be saved on the basis of general moral good works, and yet this doesn't mean the concept of, of the moral law and the concept of keeping the law as God enables the Christian, or even the relative good works of the uh, within the scope of the men who have who are rebellious against God, it does not mean they have no importance. These things have no importance. We have also touched upon again, just in summary, what we've studied in detail in the past, and that is the unity of the covenant of grace and the fact that these things are true for all dispensations. Now then, that ends the transition, and we come to the question of salvation how and um, how to become a Christian how to become a Christian surely if we only heard this far as we've come tonight in the transition and if we were an unsafe person and we had a sensitive heart we would be crushed utterly crushed just crushed because it says are you are, do you have some motion at times of repentance I can't save you do you have some relative motion of good work sometimes? That can't save you. Then how are you going to be saved? How are you going to be saved? And salvation to be thought of in the great all-inclusive sense of salvation, the salvation of the past, the salvation of the present, the salvation of the future, uh, all these things how are we going to get hold of them at all? How can we get started? If I am told, if I am told that my repentance is not enough, if I am told that my comparative moral good works are not enough, it's like running on ice. It just suddenly seems whether or not it's finished. I'm just, I'm stuck. It's hopeless. There's just no way to move. And there have been men who have heard the first half of the gospel and been thrown in dejection indeed. And there have been in days when men had a greater sense of, of, moral, uh, of moral guilt, men who have stood and wept bitter tears in the hearing of the first half of the gospel before hearing the second half. Today men have very little, have very little sense as a whole of moral guilt more among edu uneducated people today than educated. Among educated people, sense of moral guilt seems almost lost. But if we are, if we are confronted with this and we are sensitive and we're asking, well, what do we do then? And in the larger catechism question 57, what benefits hath Christ procured by his mediation? We've studied about Christ the mediator. Christ, by his mediation, hath procured redemption with all other benefits of the covenant of grace. And we who are evangelicals in our generation are apt to be a bit poor at this particular place, I would say. We talk, we see uh, how a man can be saved as far as getting to heaven is concerned, but very often we forget all the other benefits of the covenant of grace. And expressly, it seems to me, we forget the benefits in the present life. And we forget that the gospel is a gospel uh, that tells us that you aren't running on ice. Whether you're an unsaved man 
who wants to know, well, how do I start? How can I escape my guilt if I can't do it by repentance or moral good works? And also, we're not running in ice as a Christian. After we become a Christian, the Bible does teach us something about the present aspect of salvation also being on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'll just bring this together here, though actually, of course, it deals with sanctification, subject we'll see sometime in the future, and then is covered by the series of sermons on true spirituality. Also, we must remember there are future aspects of salvation. These, too, are purchased for us by Christ. But now come back. How does a man get started? First question, how? How am I saved? Actually, the word saved in the, in the Bible, if you examine it, usually has a wider meaning than merely the beginning, the justification. But I'll use it tonight at this particular place. How are you saved? In the sense of, how do you start? What's the first step? How do you move? How do you move? And uh, the, the, you don't feel the force of this until you've taken some time. If you're given an evangelistic message or writing a track or talking to somebody on a train or a plane or here at Labry, you don't feel the force of the answer till you feel the force of the, of the dilemma, just as we've laid it down. You can't be saved on the basis of repentance. You can't be saved on the basis of general moral works. And then we'll touch on some other things as we go through here. You can't be saved on the basis of... And then I, I cry. I cry, then, how can I be saved? And the Bible's answer is a magnificent answer and overwhelming. And if we have not become hard of ear because we have heard it in the past, or if we are not Christians and therefore come to accept it rather as a, as a tasteless thing as the years, and that's horrible if it's come so, we should always remember it is the good news, and it should be... It should be exciting. It should be exciting. How do we obtain salvation? The Bible's answer, as we have already looked at it, of course, in our study of uh, God's grace, is that salvation is obtained by faith in Christ plus nothing. When people tell me that all religions are the same, I know one thing. Either they don't know Christianity or they don't know the other religions simply for the fact that this is unique. There is no other religion like it. It is very simple. It is true. People talk to me the simplicity of the gospel. I'm so thankful it is so simple. But it is exceedingly profound. It touches on a wide area of philosophic, intellectual thought, as well as that which would speak to the simplest of men. Here is a revolutionary message. Here is something that of which there is no second. There is no other. There is nothing related to it. It is unique in the world. It is alone among the thoughts of men and the writings of men. There is nothing else like it. It is something God has given which is unexpected, totally unexpected. No one has even thought about it, except as God graciously has told us in his word that this is it. We are, salvation is obtained by faith in Christ plus nothing. Plus nothing, plus nothing, plus nothing. Plus nothing. In any direction, in all directions. Plus nothing. Faith in Christ plus nothing. This is the second half of the gospel. Now, I won't go into the, the, all the details of the base because I assume that everybody who's on lesson 20 has, knows all that's gone before it. But nevertheless, it has seemed to me that it would be false in such a study as, as we are making not to have at some place in the midst of the deeper comprehension of the biblical message uh, a very careful statement of how we can, how man can be saved, how man can become a Christian. So if by any chance there's anyone here tonight who is not a Christian, but, and also, but not only this, but also if there's someone studying the tapes, as undoubtedly there will be, who is not a Christian, and you come and you say, this is tremendous, but somehow or other I don't get hold of it. How do I get hold of it? How do I get hold of it? So, at this particular place, I consider that everyone has in mind lessons 1 through 19, and what we've just talked about of the transition, and now we come, how do we get hold of it? 
salvation how? And these verses, which are immediately, of course, come to our minds, and we must never be ashamed in using them, though they do not stand alone in the Scripture, in John 3, and it would seem almost the wrong place to start anywhere else at this particular point, after speaking of the law, not to speak of the sweet invitation of Jesus himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is the base, his death upon the cross, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. First of all, you notice the universal invitation. The universal invitation. Whosoever. Whosoever. The 18th verse, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So here we have... Here we have an emphasis that Christ tells us what the base is, his own death in space, in time, in history, and that salvation is obtained through faith in him plus nothing upon this base. In the uh, Confession of Faith again, in chapter, chapter 14, yes, that's what I want, chapter 14, which is Of Saving Faith, Sections 2 and 3. By this faith a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God himself speaketh therein, and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to it the commands, trembling at the threatenings, embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come, but the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. And then in the third, this faith is different in degrees, weak or strong. May be often in many, in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Now, this does sound as though it were written for the 20th century man. Some of it doesn't, I must say. Some of it we have to bring down into the area of ideas and communicate in slightly different words, the 20th century mentality. But not, not this. Not this. This deals with content. It says we are to believe, first of all, what is revealed in the word, for the authority of God himself speaketh therein. It speaks of the promises of God, the promises of God. It says in the third section, this faith is different in degrees. Now, this is a, a very up-to-date basis of discussion, because it just shouts down into the 20th century situation. It says, you're not saved on the basis of the strength of your faith, but upon the object of that faith, no matter whether weak or strong. The shouts to the 20th century theology, it just puts up a megaphone and shouts all the way back to Kierkegaard and says, we're sorry, but you're wrong. Everything that flows from Kierkegaard is denied at this particular place. There is nothing of the leap here. There are two solid aspects to this. The first thing is that it's not faith into a void. It's faith upon the promises in the Bible. And it doesn't rest upon the strength of the individual's faith, but the object of his faith. One can have an exceedingly strong faith and the wrong object. One can have the right object and an exceedingly weak faith. If a man has a very weak faith but the right object, he's saved. If a man has a very strong faith and the wrong, and the wrong object, he's lost. He's lost, and he's lost for eternity. Men have tremendously strong faith. Men can have a faith in the communistic state, which is exceedingly strong. One can have the humanistic faith of a Julian Huxley, 
which will will bide its faithfulness against all the message of history. But one can have a false religious faith. One must see the man in India who has such a faith that he can take a pin and put it through one cheek and have it come out the other and not shed a drop of blood. This is a faith. It's a self-hypnotism, all right, but it's faith. One can find tremendous faith, but a man is not saved on the basis of the strength of his faith. As we so often do with this particular in, in our discussion here, it can be related, it seems to me, expressly and with understanding to the question as when is the sexual act wrong? A sexual act is wrong not when the sexual drive is strong or weak. The sexual act is wrong when it is directed to the wrong object. A man may have a tremendous sexual drive, but if it's directed toward his wife, it's right. A man may have a very weak and controllable sexual drive, but if it's directed toward that which is a prostitution of the sexual act, it is wrong. The rightness and the wrongness does not depend upon the strength of the instinct or the drive. It depends upon the object to which it is directed. So it is with faith. A strong faith is worth nothing unless it is directed to the proper object. If we would get this rooted in ourselves, we would not be tricked by the modern neo-orthodox theology flowing from Kierkegaard. There is simply nothing in Christian in the Bible, nothing in Christian, this flow of history, which would put an emphasis on either a leap into the dark, nor a value upon a strong faith regardless of object. And it's intriguing that these two little sections here of saving faith, people keep saying to me, well, the old dusty thing, so creed. Uh, but it isn't dusty. If you simply have intelligence and understanding to read it, in the light of 20th century thinking, it shouts at the proper places from time to time to the 20th century man. First of all, the saving faith is always on the basis of the promises of God. That's the first point. And the second is, it's not the strength of the faith, but the correct object of the faith that counts. So you have here, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. This little phrase, a little further on the promises of God. Now then, this is Christian faith. What is Christian faith? Christian faith is believing God. Christian faith is, first of all, believing God. When we talk, and I think we often make a mistake in our evangelism, in our personal work here, we say to a man, believe on Christ as Savior. But often, often it has very little element in it, especially if we're talking to a typical 20th century man. This has very little element in it as far as his thinking is concerned, and often unhappily even in presentation, that believing on Christ as Savior only is a meaningful word if you first of all understand you are believing God. Faith is not a leap. Faith is believing a specific promise of God. I think you can go through the scripture, run where you will, and you'll find this emphasis. You will find the emphasis in a place that we may look at later tonight if we get to it. But nevertheless, to say it here, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. This is always Christian faith. God makes a promise and you believe him or you don't believe him. And it is not meaningful to say to a man, believe on Christ as Savior, unless he has the concept of the element of believing God. The reason it is meaningful to believe on Christ as Savior is because of the promises and covenants of God. He has made an oath. He has sworn to it. He will not lie. And so believe on Christ as Savior is a meaningful word. I think this is the problem of using the word commit your life to Christ into the 20th century fabric. What does it mean? Well, often it doesn't mean anything as far as a Christian concept is concerned. Faith is not... Uh, an act into the void. This we have picked up by being infiltrated by the opposite type of thinking. So this section is tremendous, really. The first thing is to understand God has made some promises. So when I come to a man's 
getting ready to accept Christ as Savior, my final question to him is always based in some such word, on the basis of the promises of God, have you accepted Christ as your Savior, and therefore do you know you're a Christian? Therefore do you know you're a Christian? So these two elements, believing God, based on the promises of God in the Bible, and then secondly, the understanding, this has nothing to do with weakness or strength of faith. It has to do with the object upon which this is turned. Now this becomes a very precious word to the man who is weak in faith. I don't know with how many people I deal, and especially those sometimes with psychological problems, but not only psychological problems, but we all have psychological problems. But the, the problem is my faith is so weak. I don't know how many people I've had say this. Uh, my faith is so weak. And as a Christian, I can answer finally and without any wavering, it doesn't matter one bit. Just turn your eyes on the right person, on the Jesus Christ, and who he is and what he has done. And never mind the weakness of your faith. Go ahead and believe him. Go ahead and believe the promises. Lay hold of him. Let the, let the, the faith grow. But, but you, don't have to, you don't have to be worried about the weakness of your faith. I've seen people here who have accepted Christ as Savior who later have become real pillars uh, in our own generation who, who, whose faith at the first was most amazingly weak, filled with doubts and turnings, filled with things. doesn't matter. really doesn't matter at this point. As long as one, one has his faith upon the right object. This is a very... A very Tremendously helpful word to the man who is weak of faith. And the man who is strong of faith and has his eyes fixed on his faith as a value, he's lost. A little phrase that is absolutely true, that today men do not have faith in God or Christ, they have faith in faith. And this has no Christian content whatsoever. Faith in faith is unchristian. Absolutely unchristian. So, therefore, the first thing to emphasize is the is the reality in the in the invitation of Jesus. Here we have a a promise by God Himself with a universal invitation, an emphasis that salvation is obtained through faith in Him plus nothing. But it isn't faith in faith. It's rooted in the promises of God. And it's faith in the correct object. And once you've said that, if you understand that well, you will not be infiltrated with current theological deviations. For whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Not that he will be condemned, he is condemned. Just the end of the chapter, this verse that I love so well in dealing with a man who is close to salvation. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It's the same as the already. But the lovely thing, he that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. Here's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is giving a testimony. It is that salvation is through faith plus nothing. In this tremendous section of Romans, which in a way is as clear a section as we find anywhere, of the fact that uh, salvation is through faith in Christ plus nothing. Those of you who have been doing the Romans study, of course, have spent a lot of time with this. But in Romans 3, if you just open your Bibles and glance down through it, I won't read it all, take too long. But in Romans 3, 9 through 20, you have uh, 3, 9 through 20, you have God's view of mankind's God's view of me. This is God's view of mankind. It is God's view of me. 
What then are we better than they? No in no wise, for we have before proved or charged both Jews and Gentiles. They are all under sin. There is, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all going out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And if there's no, not one, that includes me. 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 So no man can be just in God's sight on the basis of his own works. As even the best man and the best work is defile. And I suppose the verse most of us would think of would be Isaiah 64, 6. We have already looked at some others in this area, but certainly this should be in our mind. Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In the Hebrew, this filthy rags is a very strong expression. And you will notice it's in the plural. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It isn't saying just an abstract theological statement. It says, even our best work are as this filthy rag. Why? Well, here is the whole thing of motivations. If our forefathers understood it, we ought to understand it better because we have been taught to be experts at self-analysis since we are, live in the psychological age. Everybody is a, is a genius at, self, at analysis. Not that we come up with really good analysis, but we stand around analysis, uh, analyzing ourselves. And if, we, if the analyzation is to have, mean anything, it certainly means this, that we will discover that even our best acts are befouled in their motivations. Motivations tangled, mixed, complex, so that surely, with a degree of honesty that we ha are honest, as we turn deeper and deeper into our honesty and self-understanding, we will acknowledge that even the best thing we do is marred and marked. And that's what Isaiah says. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as a filthy rag. So even our best comparative works are are anything but what they should be in the presence of a holy God. Now, of course, the, we've already dealt with this, but the next question anyone ask, would ask running through is here, why, why then does God bother giving us the law if we all break it so desperately? Well, we have already had some answers to that tonight in our transition, but I would feel badly not to bring to you Galatians 3:24. Very simple verses and yet profound. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Remember the phrase we saw in the transition to drive us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. In this sense, law is grace, because it tells us how badly we need the Savior. It tells us how badly we need the Savior. It is our schoolmaster, our pedagogue, that brings us to Christ so that we can be justified by faith. So God never gave the law as a means of salvation. Not since the fall of man, not since man destroyed the possibility of keeping the covenant of works has it been possible to keep the law. So we find the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, the Golden Rule, any other commandments you can find in the Bible, these weren't given as a way of salvation for the keeping of it. Paul insists on this very forcibly in his dealing with the problem of the Jews in Romans 9, 10, and 11. As far as salvation goes, each of God's laws shows us that we need Christ. Now, I would remind you here of our transition. That does not mean that the law is not valuable. But as far as salvation goes, each of God's laws shows us that we need Christ. The man who can stay the golden rule and say he's going to get to heaven on the basis of it is a most insensitive man or dishonest man. How? But each of these things, as we agree with them, we look at them with some degree of honesty, 
brings us to the realization, I need something more. I need something more. And this does bring us to Christ. And in Acts 16, 30 through 33, we have an intriguing section that now we have dealt above that repentance. In the transition, repentance, uh, we cannot be saved on the basis of repentance, and we cannot be saved on the basis of general moral good works. Here we come to religious good works. Acts 16, 30 through 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. I'm sorry. Uh, and brought them out, this is the Philippian jail, of course, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 30. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. Now you will notice here that it says expressly, in answer to the very straightforward question, here is the man who, who, who is in the position of saying, what shall I do? I, I see I'm just stuck with the thing. I'm hopeless. I'm running on ice. I don't know how much he understood, but we can understand a great deal in bringing together the thoughts we have brought together tonight and the verses we have brought together tonight. It is the cry, what shall I do to be saved? My repentance is not enough. I'm not saying he understood this entirely. That is my point. I'm just bringing it together. My general moral good works is not enough. What shall I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. This is it. And it's after this that he is baptized. So that just as religious, just as moral good works and repentance cannot save us, so religious good works cannot save us. Baptism is a sign of salvation; it's not the basis for it. The man who is waiting to be saved on the basis of his religious good works, whether it would be baptism or the Lord's Supper or confirmation, is a man who has missed the mark as to the teaching of the Word of God and the meaning of these things. In the um, Westminster Confession of Faith, and of course, as a standard, it speaks of infant baptism, for example, and often people then will say, well, then does, it, does this mean a baptismal regeneration? The answer is absolutely no. These two things are not to be confused at all. And the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, says very forcibly that baptism, baptism is not for a moment to be considered as a possible basis uh, for, um, for salvation. In um, this Confession of Faith, let me see here, chapter 28, 28, here we go, uh, section 5. If you're jotting this down, it might have value. Uh, section 28, or chapter 28, what's the title of this? 28, section 5 of Baptism. Although it be a great sin to condemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. It cuts in both directions, and it makes very plain what it's saying. It's saying, surely it's important. God has commanded it. But nevertheless, nevertheless it doesn't mean a person can't be saved without it just what it says. Or it doesn't mean that all baptized people are saved. Cuts in both directions. Not everybody that's baptized is saved. Not everybody that is, that is not baptized is lost. This is surely exactly what the biblical emphasis is. It's perfectly possible for a person to be baptized at any time in life, to be confirmed, to take the Lord's Supper very carefully every morning at 6.30 or 7 and uh, be lost. It is not a favor to a man to give him the Lord's Supper, for example, if he is not a, sa not a saved man. The Bible says that it is possible to eat it to one's condemnation. It is certainly a criminal thing and entirely unbiblical to give any inclination of baptismal regeneration in any way, shape, or form. The Bible is insistent that just as a man cannot be saved on the basis of his repentance nor his general good works, he cannot be saved on the basis of his moral good works. And happily, the Scripture very carefully lays down uh, the fact that these things are not the base. 
given Romans this very intriguing thing of Abraham and his circumcision. In Romans 4.2, it insists that Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ, was saved not on the basis of his uh, keeping of the law, but faith. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. We would read that today, but if Abraham were justified by works, he hath something to glory about, but he doesn't have before God, and he doesn't. He wasn't saved on the basis of his works. He wasn't justified 2,000 years before Christ on the basis of his works. It was something quite different. In the fourth verse, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So if it's possible for Abraham or anybody else to come along and say, All right, I've done the thing. I've done it. I've done it. Now you owe it to me. And surely this is the concept of all men in all religions who build a salvation based upon any works. All religions except the Judistic Christian tradition is built upon certain works that if you do them, when you stand before God, you can demand to, demand to be accepted. But God is speaking here through Paul and saying, isn't that way? There aren't any works that you can do that will allow you to stand before God and demand to be accepted. It isn't so. And it says that David understood this as well as Abraham in the sixth verse, even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, and so on. The importance of this is, of course, Abraham lived before Moses, David lived after Moses. Paul was saying through the inspiration of the scriptures, they all understood this. They understood this. Well, then, how was Abraham accepted? And, of course, it is the third verse, and it's the one I've already quoted to you earlier. For what saith the Scriptures, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for, righteous, uh, for righteousness. And if you'll trace back into Genesis 15:16, you'll find that he was believing. What was he believing? He was believing a spoken promise of God. He was believing, believing a spoken promise of God, and on believing this, it was said it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, how does this enter into the question of, of uh, uh, religious good works? Well, of course, it enters into the whole question of circumcision. What place does circumcision have in all this? What place does circumcision have in all this? And in verses 9 through 11 of Romans 4, you have the answer. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Now, if you search this out, you will find that it could have been up to 25 years between the time when he believed and it was counted to him for righteousness and when he was circumcised. It was a long, long time. So it was long before he was circumcised that he was believed and it was he believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Then afterwards, many years afterwards, you come to the eleventh verse. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had been uncircumcised. So it was long afterwards. He was he was he believed. It was counted to him for righteousness. It says expressly in the second verse on this, he was justified. Going back into the story of Abraham, we know that he had, in Genesis 22, he was looking forward with uh, a real degree of comprehension to the coming Messiah. But the emphasis here is not even upon that. It's he believed God. This was the point. He believed God. What did he believe? It was no leap in the dark. He believed the spoken promise of God. And when he believed the spoken promise of God, it was counted to him for righteousness. And long afterwards, he was circumcised as a sign and a seal of what already was. So you have the fact in the Old Testament of circumcision, just as in the New Testament of baptism, that this is not the basis of uh, salvation whatsoever. Religious good works cannot save. They just cannot save. They're not... You can't be saved with religious good works any more than we can be saved by moral good works or upon the basis of repentance. Now, we must understand that from the Bible itself, looking at the Old Testament, 
that not all the Old Testament Jews were truly spiritual Israel. In other words, not all Jews in the Old Testament were saved, to put it in our terminology. And this is important because the emphasis then is that being a, an Israelite externally did not save one. I'm reading from Romans 9, 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. It's perfectly possible to be a member uh, of Israel without being spiritual Israel. Bringing it over to our own setting, uh, this is the, you'd have the emphasis upon the fact that church membership doesn't save either. Salvation is indeed only ours on the basis of faith in Christ plus nothing. If one is depending upon his baptism to be saved, he isn't saved. If one is depending upon his church membership to be saved, he isn't saved. It's just as simple as this. Now the Bible says this very plainly. Because you would have, for example, in Matthew, in Matthew 7:21, and we hear Jesus say in this particular place, in Matthew 7:21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Another place he tells us what the will of his Father is, is to believe on him whom God has sent. Or we have a much stronger word in Matthew 25, 12. And it's one that always makes me very sad as I read it. It's the story of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven be likened on the ten virgins. This you must notice that, of course, Matthew 25 immediately follows Matthew 24, which is the great chapter on the second coming of Christ. And he's talking here, and as you read through this, surely he's talking here about the, the professing Christians uh, at the time of the rapture. And um, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And he says, well, here are these people. And uh, surely this is the visible church. And there are five of them and five of them. And some were went, some were taken. And the others were left. And afterwards came also the other virgins saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. And if this doesn't make us sad, there's something the matter with us. Here are these who stand in what they consider some external relationship. It seemed to me exactly those that the book of Hebrews speaks of as those under the external covenant blessings. And they say, Lord, Lord, but that doesn't get them accepted. They haven't come upon the right basis. They're not really the redeemed. They're in the external they're in the external setting, but they're, they're not real Christians. You have this little section. I meant to look it up in my concordance before I came down tonight, and I forgot to, so you'll have to excuse me. I don't have the reference. Where you have it said, uh, if, they, if they had been of us, they wouldn't have gone out from us. In other words, there, there are those in the church, in the early church, the early visible church, that they were there, but they didn't belong to them. Any more than some of the Jews were Israel without being Israel any more than some of the Jews were Israel without being Israel. Salvation is not on the basis of our religious good works, including our church membership. It's not on the basis of our baptism. It's not on the basis of our general moral good works. It's not on the basis of repentance. It's only on one thing, faith in Christ plus nothing. And that's all, that's all, and that's all. For the man to depend on any of these other things, he is to delude himself. Because salvation is not a debt, lest any man should boast. Since the fall of man, there is no place for the covenant of works. Under the covenant of works, we may only be condemned. In Galatians 2.16, you have a direct statement that there can be no kinds of works brought to brought as a basis of our salvation. Of course, Romans and Galatians are dealing with this problem especially, and so one is not surprised to find these two books the very center of this thinking. Of course, this is where Luther came to comprehension in these two books, too, especially Galatians. The Galatians 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Certainly you could not have a clearer statement. And as we've seen, that includes repentance, moral good works, religious good works, or uh, the whole thing. Paul says the same thing under the inspiration of the Scripture in Romans 3. deals with exactly the same subject matter, Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's the Old and New Testament alike. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Actually, it's stronger in the Greek, because it says, All sinned in the aorist, in the past tense, and all are coming short uh, in the present. Both things are given here. But what? Being justified gratis by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. As I so often point out, it's not in the Greek, but the force of the Greek is, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and yet the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. He does not give up his holiness. He does not have to. On the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, he does not have to give up his holiness. And yet he can receive us. Because Christ has died, this is the basis. There is no other. And we lay hold of it only as we accept what Christ has done for us on the promises of the, we find in the Bible by faith. There is no other way. Good works cannot save us, but faith in Christ will. The word gratis is uh, without cost in any way. In the King James translation, it's freely, but it's gratis is the meaning. There's no, no cost in any way. And the base is the finished work of Christ. Then there are the negative verses, which you must, certainly it would be false not to give when we're saying to a man who has come through all these lessons and says, well, then how can I be saved? We must, especially in a generation like our own, give the negative because people are forever telling us, well, surely there's other way. The whole emphasis of the modern thinking, whether it's Baha'i or in the modern theology, there are many ways. It doesn't matter. But that isn't what the Bible says. The Bible says there's one way or nothing. That's it. And Jesus says, I say unto you, I say therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. I think it's actually stronger than this. You will notice the he is in italics, which means it was just filled in by the translators. I think he's saying something else. For if you believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. I think he's associating himself here with these great I am passages in other places and way back to the burning bush. I am that I am. But he says very flatly, if you don't believe, you shall die in your sin. There's absolutely, absolutely no other way. It is a unique thing. It is, there is an exclusiveness in the preaching of Jesus Christ. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We mustn't be afraid of the exclusiveness of the gospel at this particular place. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they're all definite articles. I am, you notice the I am, it's intriguing. The way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But by me. In the, um, in the longer catechism, question 60 and the answer speaks to this very, to this very point. Question 60. Can they who have never heard the gospel and so non know not Jesus Christ or believe in him be saved by their living according to the light of nature? Answer. They who having never heard the gospel 
know not Jesus Christ and believe not in him cannot be saved. Be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature or the laws of that religion which they profess. Neither is there salvation in any other but Christ alone, who is the Savior only of the body of the church. And we might weep at this, but it's what the Bible teaches. There's, as we said over and over again, there's only one answer to the weeping heart when we come against this, and that is to preach the gospel. There absolutely is no other answer. Now, this is exactly what the Bible says. And Romans, the Lord has inspired Paul to write in the book of Romans, in the 10th chapter, verse 14, these words. He says in the 13th, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not heard, or have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they hear without a preacher? Soul man, if you were asking the question, then how can I be saved? How can I be saved if it's not on the basis of my moral good works, my repentance, my religious good works? How can I be saved? Well, you must understand there's only one way to be saved. It's what we said. It's through faith in Christ plus nothing. On the basis of the promises and the word of God are believing and knowing this, having this content on the basis of the promises in the word of God. And the base being that finished work of Christ there on Calvary. Not as an idea, let us quickly say. Not as a thought. Not as an ideal. It has no relation to platonic ideas and ideals. It has a relationship to time and space and history. One place in all the ticking of the clock. One set of moments. One day. One bit of geography outside the city wall where Jesus died in space and time. And that's the basis, and there is no other. There is no other. And finally, for the last verse tonight, in the book of Acts that speaks in the same general direction, in Acts, the fourth chapter, Acts, the fourth chapter, and the twelfth verse, Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, that's all men, whereby we must be saved. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. O man who says then, how can I be saved? When I see all this, how can I be saved? I've heard about the mediatorial work of Christ all this, but now how can I be saved? Well, we must understand it's faith in Christ or nothing. It's, it's accepting this, this finished work of Jesus through faith, and there is no other way. There's only one base. It is the death of Christ in space, in time, and in history. When modern theologians would strike at the historicity of the death, they have struck at the heart of the gospel. There is only one base. It is the death of Christ in space and time and in history. A finished work there. And there is only one instrument to lay hold of this. It is the instrument of faith. The two words throw the light on exactly the way. O man, if there is such listening to this tape or here tonight who wants to know how can I be saved, there are the two words. The base is the finished work of Christ. The instrument is faith. Faith does not save as the base. Faith is the empty hands that accepts the gift based on what Christ has done for us when he died there and said, it is finished. It is finished. Now then, everyone who comes to this place, and at this particular place, our study of the doctrines becomes something more than doctrine. It becomes the understanding, I've got to, where am I? Where am I? Have I accepted Christ as my Savior? And I would just say, not knowing where these tapes will go in the years to come. If you never have, do it now. If you never have, do it now. First, the understanding. There is no other way. It cannot be on the basis of works, either moral or religious. It cannot. It is only through faith in Christ plus nothing. Faith in Christ plus nothing. And I would, wouldn't end without giving you what I think are the four ideas 
that must be faced if a man is to, is to really believe on Christ as Savior. And they're grounded and rooted in this thing we have spoken of tonight. The first thing is, do I believe that God exists? And do I believe that Jesus is God? Do I believe that God exists? And do I believe that Jesus is God? This is not an existential experience in the sense of contentlessness. It is just not. It's not you saying you believe in Christ as Savior to you're sure that God exists. There's no use saying you believe in Christ as Savior to understand who the person of Christ is. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He has existed forever. He existed before the creation of the world. The first question is the person, the person of Christ and the Trinity. Do I believe that God exists? And do I believe that Jesus is God in the full Trinitarian sense? Second, do I accept the fact in what I've read tonight that men are guilty and even their righteousnesses are as filthy rags? Do I accept this as appertaining to myself? So when the Bible says all men are guilty, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, do I say they or do I say I? I am in that place. I am morally guilty. This is second. And it's got to be an understanding of moral guilt not the modern theologian's concept of guilt being guilt feelings or guilt being related merely to our finiteness as opposed to infinity. It isn't this. It's moral guilt. There is a holy God who exists and I have sinned and I am guilty in the full moral sense, the classical sense of guilty, judicial sense of guilty. Thirdly, do I believe do I believe that Jesus died in history, in space and in time? And when he died, he finished his work. And the modern theologians, as I say, that would touch the historicity of this thing, have touched the quick. It, a few years ago, I never would have said, when I was working back in the 30s, I never said, do you believe that Jesus died in space and time and in history? What an awkward way to have to talk. But I must say it today because I find people talk about the death of Christ and think of it just as an idea. As an idea. That won't do. Jesus died in a specific geographical location at a specific moment. Do I believe that Jesus died in space and time and in history? And when he died, his work was done. Jesus said it is accomplished. It is accomplished. <laughs> We've laid down three of the four now. First, do I believe? do I believe that... Jesus, that God exists and that Jesus is God. Do I believe that I am morally guilty and deserve God's wrath? Do I believe that Jesus died in history, in space and time, upon the cross, and when he died his work was finished, and fourthly, on the basis of the promises of God in his word, do I believe, do I believe, on the basis of the invitations given in the word, do I believe that Jesus died for me, individually and personally? Do I? Do I? Because if I do, if I do, then I have been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear Son, and I can have absolute assurance for now and all the wintry nights that are ahead of me and the blowing gales and the blowing of the wind and the tossing of the sea, because I have the promise of God the God who exists, the God who is so holy he will not lie, the God is so holy that the only way he could, this holiness could be met was to send his own son to die on the cross. I have the promise of God. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. If I believe like this, then this is the answer to the how. And I can say, thank God, on the basis of the promises of God, I understand the how now, and I have believed. With the instrumentality of faith, I have laid hold upon the finished work of Christ. And on the basis of the promise of God, I can now say, I have passed from death to life. And at this particular point, the study of doctrine becomes something very precious to the individual. No longer is he lost. But he's a child of God 
salvation opens before him with all its riches, all that Christ has purchased for us, past, present, and future. And this is salvation. And the how is salvation on the basis of the finished work of Christ through faith plus nothing. And the Lord willing, in the next weeks, we'll look at to see what some of our riches in Christ are. In justification, in our new relationship to each of the three persons of the Trinity, in the brotherhood of believers, in sanctification, and in glorification. <laughs>